0: Hello, my fellow fallible humans. This is the Red Roof Recovery Show, an addiction recovery program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. And it's not just for addictions, it's for life. My name is Tanya McIntyre. I'm here with you every week to share my experience around my own recovery from drugs and alcohol. I created Red Roof Recovery to provide not only a unique program for residential recovery, but to also develop a relapse prevention program. And these programs are based on the principles of rational emotive and other cognitive behavioral therapies, along with various other tools of therapy. You've heard me say that there are hundreds of tools of therapy, literally hundreds. The key is to find something that clicks for you, something that works for you, and then when you find that, assuming it's something that's good for you, you want to grab onto that and then do more of it. On this episode of the Red Roof Recovery Show, I have Lancelot back joining me for his endless support. Lance is my husband of 30 plus years, he's lived with me through my addictions. And he's actually also recently becoming, he's studying now to become a fellow SMART facilitator. Uh, SMART is an acronym for self-management and recovery training. It's an addiction recovery program based on rational, emotive, and other cognitive behavioral therapies. And I've been a facilitator with SMART since 2018. And it's definitely a program that has helped me remain abstinent from um, harmful substances and behaviors. So I've spent a long time in recovery circles. I've been in AA, I still go to AA meetings. Some are good, some are not so good. Uh, I love the slogans of AA. I use them all the time because they're memorable and when something is repeated, Time and time again, after eight, nine years of being in the rooms of 12-step programs, it starts to settle into the neural network and what we practice grows stronger. So I like to say one day at a time and it works when we work it and take what you need and leave the rest. And like I said, some meetings are okay, some meetings not great. So find what works for you and then do more of it. I still go to AA meetings because they're more plentiful. Uh, What sent me in search of looking for a more secular program when I was about nine years into my recovery was because I was going to a lot of funerals in 12-step programs. A lot of people were relapsing and not returning from their relapses. Um, I was relapsing a lot, and I knew it was just going to be a matter of time before I didn't come back from one of my relapses. So I went in search of something else that I could bring to my community, and there wasn't a lot to choose from when I went in search in 2018. And at that time, Smart Recovery had been around for more than 20 years in a place called Mentor, Ohio. It was uh, founded there. And that resonated with me because mentorship had been very important and relevant to my life. So I became a smart facilitator in 2018, and I'm happy to say since that time, I have managed to abstain from harmful substances and behaviors, so there's a lot to be said for that for me that it expanded my consciousness, my understanding. And when I started to delve deeper into my thought processes, then I was able to better manage my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So my Lancelot has just recently retired. If you've listened to a few of the previous episodes that we've done together, He retired sooner than later because we are now uh, just over two years into the global pandemic. Uh, Well, that's what it means to have a pandemic, it's global. And uh, he was doing a job in Toronto that he hated and commuting and living apart for uh, a week at a time and then seeing each other on the weekends. It just wasn't a quality of life that we were enjoying very much. And of course, my being involved with SMART, self-management and recovery training, uh, one of the tools that I love to use in our recovery circles is something called the cost-benefit analysis, whereby you take a sheet of paper and you put a big cross on the paper and then you've got four quadrants to work from. And on the top, you want to list the advantages and disadvantages of continuing to do something, and then on the bottom two quadrants, the disadvantages of continuing. Did I get that right? I think so. Advantages, disadvantages of doing, advantages, disadvantages of not doing. So we did this cost-benefit analysis pretty much every weekend for a few months until the benefits of not returning to Toronto finally started to uh, grow, so that, That kind of marked the beginning of your early retirement. So I'm grateful because you have stepped in to be with me on this program. And I have to say, it's getting some great feedback. And I'm not great with technology. But when I do remember to upload an episode to YouTube, the ones that we've done together have gotten the most response, the most views. Oh, that's nice. Isn't that nice? It is. People like uh, our banter back and forth together because... You know, I can talk a lot about my addictions, why I became addicted, um, and what's working for me in my recovery. But people I think are more curious, you know, I get a lot of my um, outreach is coming from family and friends of those who are living with addictions. And family and friends, I mean, you, you were my family. Living with me through my addictions, and I never really considered what that was like for you because I was, you know, in my own little dome of illness for so long. So let's talk about what that was like for you, because in recovery circles, we talk about hitting bottom, Or rock bottom, what was your bottom? That's a topic of conversation in recovery circles. And I really dislike the term um, because I think it feeds the shame-based stigma that persists around addiction and recovery. So I prefer to use the term catalyst for change. I find that a little more self-empowering. I'm a little fanatic when it comes to our language and how we're using our language around addiction and recovery because some language, I think, and, you know, language... Uh, is very subjective as well. So what works for some people doesn't work for others. For instance, when I go to 12-step meetings, I don't like calling myself an alcoholic or addict. Uh, Some people who have been going to these meetings say, oh no, I I like that, it motivates me. So if it works for you, absolutely. Uh, Labeling myself that way did not work for me. It made me feel uh, more ashamed and heavy and flawed defective. I didn't want to feel that way. So I prefer now to go to the meetings and say, hi, I'm Tanya, and I am grateful to have another day free from drugs and alcohol. And what that does is uh, turns a lot of heads in the meetings, but it also generates conversation after the meeting, and it opens up some dialogue that probably I wouldn't have had the opportunity to have if I hadn't taken that position. So I'm really big around words and how we're using our language in recovery. So my catalyst for change for me came in 2009. And in 2009 we were living in Spain and I made the decision to check myself into a 30-day rehab. So we were married in 1991. You lived with me at that time for 18 years while my addictions were progressing. And I'm curious to know what prevented you from leaving me during that time, because I'm not sure I could have hung in with somebody who was in active addiction for 18 years. How did you do that?
1: Well, the thing is, your addictions, you were managing them quite well. And you would go through a period of more use and it would get worse and worse, and every six months, to a year I'd turn around and I'd say to you I think it might be time to just pull in the reins on the use of the alcohol and you'd take this time and you'd say yeah sure and you'd go through the period of measuring out only having two drinks of a night and you seem to be managing it
0: I actually did use a measuring cup as well yes you did (laughs) and you'd manage it so
1: yes you you had a problem, but it wasn't a big impact problem at that time. That you could see. That I could see.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, the big change came when we went to Spain, where because of our circumstance, you're not being able to work, not having the culture there of being one of many retired people who started drinking early in the morning, had a siesta, drank at night time. I was at work. I didn't see it. And uh, it got pretty bad pretty quickly. It did. And I remember standing in the in the kitchen in Alcudia, in the north of uh, Majorca, and saying to you, I think it may be time to rein it in a bit. And this time, there was no. It was, you ran up one side and down the other, and how dare you, and got very belligerent. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this isn't good. However, shortly after that period, you reached out to Serenity House, unbeknownst to you, that night, and you went into rehab.
0: Mm-hmm. So, t- just a little backstory for those of you who don't know that story: uh, We had an opportunity to move to Mallorca, Spain, in 2007, and. That was, our intention was to semi-retire there because you had a wonderful job opportunity. I was going to teach English as a second language. And when we got there, the Spanish government wouldn't recognize our Canadian marriage certificate. They wanted the long version. We only had the short version. And there was a lot of politics happening between Canada and Spain at the time that wasn't helping as well. So I was mired in bureaucracy for two years and I couldn't legally work in the country. And also, we were arriving to a country that, you know, my my addictions were escalating in Canada, as it it was at Mm -hmm. that time. And then we moved to Spain, where I discover that my two favorite things, brandy and wine, are cheaper than water there. So so what it did for me, uh, because I had idle time and depression and anxiety about, uh, you know, being mired in this bureaucracy and feeling hopeless and helpless... So my addictions spiraled downward very, very quickly. Yes. Probably saved my life in many ways.
1: Quite possibly. I think if we'd stayed in Canada and we'd carried on going through the, you want to put a hold on this a little bit? The waves, yeah. The waves. Mm-hmm. You were just hidden it more. Yeah. And in the end, it would have got really bad. Mm-hmm. Instead, you went into rehab and started your journey to sobriety
0: yes it certainly is a journey yeah and I I managed my addictions and another thing that annoys me in recovery circles is that uh we actually label each other and judge you know assess judge evaluate everything uh people included and we talk about high bottom drunks and low bottom drunks so the low bottom drunks being the the guys and girls who are drinking out of a paper bag, uh, homeless, living under a bridge, or sleeping on a park bench. And a high-bottom drunk, that's where people considered me to fall because I managed it very, very well. However, uh, that management, what it looked like for me is that I was dragging myself through my life. I had a high-profile vocation as a broadcaster, And I was going to work sick every day to a point where I actually bought a a waterproof uh, garbage receptacle that I could keep in my car so I could throw up on the way to work and on the way back from work. And I would medicate myself to get through the day. So that's what, if if that's what is considered a high-bottom drunk, uh, than I guess I was. But I managed it uh, by the skin of my teeth, by, the, by my little uh, tips of my fingers. Yeah. I don't really consider it managing. I was dragging myself through my life. So I think the move to Spain and the, the spiral downward very quickly likely saved my life and going into rehab.
1: And I, I think also is that I became more aware of it because in Kendra I, I worked an awful lot of hours. Again, I traveled to work for over an hour and back. And I'd work 10 to 12 hours every day, most weekends. So consequently, we didn't have a lot of time together. And so there wasn't a lot of time to... And we didn't socialize much. But when we went to Spain, because the culture is an outdoor culture, going down to the square in the evening, and events in the different bars and what have you, it became very evident that you know every time we went out, you were staggering home. Now you hid the times when you were staggering upstairs to bed because I had to go to work and I'd I'd go to bed earlier than you. So that was hidden. But I could tell that it was it was getting worse far quicker than it was when we lived in Canada. So I think uh, the question about what was it like for me, as I said, there there was no real conflict because you seem to be managing it Mm -hmm. and if one thing I have learned through my life is that there is nothing I can do to influence what you're doing. That's entirely down to you. So I was just there enjoying the good bits and reining in when it got too bad, which you would do until Spain. Mm -hmm. But then you did reach out to try to find help, Yeah, which was a big thing.
0: It was a big thing, I think, not only for me, but for you as well, to, to see that I was at least making an effort to do something. But what you didn't know is that I was relapsing a lot. So I would manage to abstain for maybe a year or two years at a time, and then I would relapse. But again, I managed those very well, and... Uh, lied To you About it Well
1: I think It depends on The relapse
0: You know,
1: How many people Have a bad week And
0: I think just about everybody Has
1: come, Bad weeks And comes home on a Friday <laughs> And they go God I need a drink And have You know Too many beers A couple of bottles of wine Feel Absolutely awful In the morning And it Totally ruins their Weekend how many people go through that?
0: Everybody, I think, at one time or another. Yeah.
1: So life throws these little bumps in the road, and the way I like to put it is, you know, the wagon's going to hit a bump, and sometimes you're going to fall off the wagon. But if you dust yourself off and get back on the wagon, it shows that you're, you're trying. You're trying to manage your addiction. If you go for a wander in the, in the back 40, that's a different map because then you are just indulging yourself in your addiction and you're not trying to you're not trying to find your way out of the addiction Mm -hmm. and I think for the person living with the person with addiction a lot of it is to do with seeing that you are trying to help yourself because like I say I can't help you Mm. I can be here to support you but I can't stop you drinking so, you know, the fact that you at, you're actually doing something and if life throws a curveball and you fall off and, you know, one weekend you get absolutely annihilated but on Monday morning you get up and you go, oh, that was totally stupid like, and mm-hmm. suffer with it for the next week. But again, it a year, two years, three years, hopefully forever, but you never know. Mm -hmm. that shows a dedication to trying to make your life better. And with that, makes my life better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I, I was waking up in the morning vowing to make a change every day when I was in my active addiction. It didn't change the fact that I was walking toward a vodka bottle at the liquor store after work. So, you know, again, we know so little about addiction, which I think is why I'm so passionate about the topic, because there's just so much to delve into, is all we really know about addiction is that it's a complex condition. It's a chronic illness. And you know, people have said, well, it's, it's about your inability to regulate dopamine levels. Well, yeah, I suppose it could be. There's another theory uh, that perhaps it's just an inability to regulate moods and emotions. Yeah, absolutely, perhaps. I became habitually incapable of managing my moods and emotions and, as a child when I was going through trauma. If you listen to someone like Dr. Gabor Mate, who has spent many years dealing with uh, chronically addicted people, he said the common thread among all of them is trauma. But there are a lot of people who go through trauma. And don't become addicted and don't become addicted i know right it's, therein lies the paradox
1: so you know what is it is it you know for the grace of god there go i mm. you know or is it something in our makeup that we're unable to get over that trauma
0: well we're, we know we're all wired differently addiction affects people differently And people are going to recover differently. What works for me is not going to work for somebody else and vice versa.
1: Yeah. So, you know, with what you're doing now, Smart, is there's a whole plethora of different tools. Because as you say, we're complex. So the toolbox has to be complex as well. Mm. You tried AA, and it helped. It's a great personal development program. Yeah. definitely but it didn't work as well as smart does
0: no for you for me
1: for you Mhm. but there's totally different things in smart that could work for a lot of people and maybe in you know with AA and other types of maybe you need more than one
0: I'm really glad you are studying to be a facilitator because <laughs> you will be such a great resource for family and friends because you can speak from that position.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of the things, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the, the person going through the addiction, which is right. I mean, they're the ones that are suffering the most. But they're the people living with them, they're on that journey as well. They're, you know, when you go wandering in the back 40, we are dragged with you mm-hmm. in a certain way.
0: And feeling helpless and a bit hopeless. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and there aren't many resources out there for family and friends of loved ones who are challenged by uh, substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, so yeah, it's the pickings are slim.
1: They are. But what people who are on the journey with the person with the addictions is, has to realize that you have a choice. You have a choice to look after yourself. And that could mean leaving the person with the addiction.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to ask that. That was going to be my next question for you. So when we went to the destination wedding in Honduras, uh, I decided it would be a really good idea to drink during that trip. Yeah,
1: wasn't a good idea. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think maybe that might have been your catalyst. That that
1: was definitely the point where I felt.
0: What year was that? That was about uh,
1: six, years six years ago. Six years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So 2016.
0: So we're 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 doing this show in 2022. So that yeah, 2016.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you'd been you'd been actively on and off the wagon, but you were, you know, you you were trying. Mm-hmm. You were, seem to be trying really hard. You'd have little slips, and but that that um, that period and that vacation. You seem to be reveling in your... There was no moderation. You were going full full bore. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. Because one of the things that I didn't want to happen, which would most probably happen, is that if I decided to stay with you doing what you were doing, I'd end up resenting you. Mm. And then I'd resent... I'd end up disliking you and possibly even hating you. So would it be better to leave with the memories of a really nice relationship and also help myself get away from that environment? And at that time, yes, I would have walked away from... If you'd carried on that path, I would have walked away. And I think people who are living with people with an addiction... Have to realize that maybe that is the only option you're left with Mm
0: -hmm. if you
1: want to look after yourself. Now, there's all different types of reasons why people won't, you know. Everything from if you're married to the person who's bringing in uh,
0: the money, yeah,
1: that's a hard one. Um, You don't want to be seen as leaving someone, you know, societal judgment. Oh, like Tanya was unwell, and he left her. Like, you know, what type of person does that? Mm-hmm. The social judgment, you know, the guilt of not trying hard enough. You know, I surely I could have helped her get out of this, which you can't. You can't do that.
0: So the the analogy used is the airplane analogy when we're flying in that metal tube and the flight attendant is giving the directions, the safety instructions, that if the cabin pressure changes and the oxygen mask falls down from the ceiling, we are instructed to put the mask on ourselves first because we can't save anybody until we save ourselves first. Really difficult concept for people to grasp, I think.
1: It is, like I say, because there's so much... Judgement about, it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: like yeah, from from. It's construed side. to be selfish. Selfish, yeah. Yeah, oh. but if you're being dragged around the back 40 and it's harming you, because in the end it will harm you, like it will harm your psyche, it will harm the relationship, and yeah, is that worth? Is that worth it? Because I'm afraid I didn't have the addiction. <laughs>
0: Well, we've got three minutes left, Lancelot, and uh, we were going to talk about uh, the work of Richard Schwartz because I always talk about the mentors who've been relevant to my life. And uh, Dr. Dick Schwartz has certainly been one of them. Um, He's a family or was a family therapist and created uh, through his work something called the IFS Approach for Treating Mental Health Disorders Like Addictions. IFS is an acronym for internal family systems, and uh, the theory being, and Gabor Maté agrees with him on a lot of uh, those points, is that we each have a family living inside of us. And addiction is a family affair, we say that a lot. And if we have this dysfunctional family also living inside of us, holy mackerel. Where do we start to unravel that? So, I think we're going to deep dig a little deeper into, into Mr. Schwartz. Yeah, into the work of uh, sure. Dick Schwartz. So, I encourage you to look him up in the meantime. Uh, IFStherapy.com, I think. Don't quote me on that, but uh, Dick Schwartz, Richard Schwartz, uh, you'll find him. If you just Google that. And if you are family and friends looking for support of living with someone, if, if you have a loved one suffering with any kind of addiction, behavioral or substance, you can get support from Smart Recovery. You can go to their website, smartrecovery.org, and uh, click on Find a Meeting. And there are several meetings for family and friends, specifically online right now. So please do that and lots of resources on the website as well to explore for you. Thank you so much for being here, spending 30 minutes with me every week. It's an integral part of my recovery journey, I tell ya. So thank you. And I want to now promote two books that I did in honor of my philosopher dad, uh, mindful wisdom from my philosopher dad's sage advice from a single father. And I wanted to create a legacy for my father. He was an extraordinary man bringing up um, children in the 60s and 70s on his own. Um, it was quite an anomaly for the day and he was struggling with his own addictions at the time. So I wanted to uh, actually celebrate this with him while he was still alive. but. Uh, He sadly died before I could finish the book from Alzheimer's. And then during the pandemic, I wrote a second book in his honor. This one is called Daily Wisdom from my philosopher dad. This one I set up as a daily journal with inspirational messages to guide your days. So I would love that you uh, buy the books at Amazon.ca. And also they're available at Finchers in the Square in Canada's prettiest town of Goderich, Ontario. And on this journal book of daily wisdom, reflect on the daily message and then write your thoughts and intentions for the day because I think the power of words is very powerful and the power of the written word is life transformational. May the force be with you and remember, you are the force.